You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. Yours truly is going to be discussing Leviticus and why I think, or at least I'm going to be trying to make the case, why I think this is a really important, uh, albeit very neglected book in the church. So we'll be doing that here in a moment. But before we jump into Leviticus, let me just uh, draw your attention again to the variety of things we're doing at the Center for Bible Study to help encourage people to engage deeply with Scripture. We've got some new classes coming up. We're about to wrap up our Ephesians class here in a couple weeks, but we'll have two additional classes coming up here in the spring slash summer. Uh, one will be a class on the drama of Scripture, so I'll be taking people through the, the biblical story in five parts. And the second class will be team teaching with a colleague of mine, Reverend uh, Marilyn Williams, for calling it Women and Power in the Church, and that will be coming up in August. So I'm giving you fair warning. I'll be making this announcement more as, as time goes on to kind of draw your attention to these things. But just to highlight, there's some fun and exciting things coming up. The other thing is that just to make you aware of the variety of resources we have out there now on the internet. I've been recording short videos that are designed to help kind of get conversations started about the Bible and get awareness of the center out there. So if you feel inclined to share those and make use of them, we'd, we'd appreciate it. And then also our YouTube channel. Uh, we're hoping that this can be a space to make biblical scholarship broadly available to the general public and to others who are just hungry for deeper knowledge of scripture. So if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'd really appreciate if you leave likes and comments on our videos. This helps with the YouTube algorithm, which I don't understand, but I'm told that it helps. We would greatly appreciate that. And without further ado, we'll jump into our podcast on Leviticus. All righty. Well, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited for this episode. We are indeed talking Leviticus, so true to the title. I made sure that it was very clear and bold in the title so you don't feel like this is a bait and switch. I am going to be talking for Leviticus uh, for the next hour or so. So you're duly warned. Now, with that said, I, I, I ask for your patience and attention because I think Leviticus is actually one of the most important books in the Bible for us to understand as Christians. Next week, we're going to be discussing Hebrews, the so-called letter to the Hebrews. And I'm, I'm going to bring on a guest. She's a Hebrews scholar. And so part of what's really critical for understanding Hebrews is Leviticus. So this episode is strategically situated just before that one and my conversation with her. Um, but even more than that, just with the book of Hebrews, Leviticus is a really important book for us to begin to get our hands around when it comes to thinking about some of these broader categories that are really important for us in the Bible, like holiness or something that's common, uh, impure versus pure, unclean versus clean. Uh, what do we mean by atonement? What is a sacrifice? And are, what are the different sacrifices? There's a lot going on in Leviticus that's kind of foundational to later conversations in early Judaism and Christianity that we really, it really behooves us to understand and to try to get our hands around so that we can have a better appreciation of what, you know, early Jews and Christians are talking about. So I get it that Leviticus is a book we often avoid, um, probably because it can kind of seem to drone on and have a sort of monotonous feeling to it. 
or maybe we just don't understand it, or maybe some combination of the two. It's boring because we don't understand what's going on. In many cases, the text is just describing ritual actions, and these actions are so distant and removed from us, it's like, why should I care? Thank God that Jesus came so that we don't have these things anymore. But my aim for today is to make Leviticus interesting, exciting, and to help you see connections to, from this book to your faith. So that's my, that's my task. It might be a tall task, but I'm going to set out to try to do that. Before we jump in and I kind of dive into talking about Leviticus in more detail, I do want to mention a couple books that I think might be interesting for you. Most of my discussion today is going to be focused strictly on the book of Leviticus and understanding it within its context, understanding the categories it presents for us and how that fits within the Pentateuch, priestly literature, uh, the Hebrew Bible more broadly. But, I mean, you might be wondering, well, okay, but how do you connect that to the New Testament? So, a couple answers. One, you want to listen next week because I'll be discussing again with a Hebrew scholar uh, what her views are on sacrifice and how Leviticus helps us understand the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament. So, that's one thing. The other thing is there's a couple books that I would recommend. Um, I've used these with students before in the past and they've really enjoyed them. They are academic works, but they're academic works written for, for interested people. Uh, laypersons, students in seminary or other places. So they're not like technical monographs in the sense that you have to have a PhD to understand them. If you sit down with these books and you're engaged, you'll get a lot out of them. So one of the books that I, I always like to recommend, because I think it does a really good job just introducing the sacrificial system and dealing with some of the sacrificial language you find then in the New Testament. Most of it's focused on the Old Testament, but he does look at the New Testament as well. And that is a book by uh, Christian Eberhard. Chris teaches at the University of Houston. He's done extensive work on sacrifice. His PhD, both his PhD and his second monograph, the uh, Habilitationsschrift, which is in German uh, scholarship, you, you're not really sit, uh, solidified in your career until you do your second monograph. So for his first book, he focused on the ritual sacrifice in, Le in Leviticus. So this is kind of his area. And then his second monograph, he focused on New Testament and early Christian and some early Jewish uses of sacrificial language. So he's really spanned the canon and a broad area, like a broad range of texts when it comes to thinking about sacrifice. Uh, he's a great guy, really deep thinker. So he wrote a book called The Sacrifice of Jesus, Understanding Atonement Biblically. And I think this is a really helpful introduction to rethinking some of the categories that we may have been taught about sacrifice uh, from just kind of popular things we pick up on in church. So that's a, that's The Sacrifice of Jesus, Understanding Atonement Biblically. Really great book, helpful starter uh, in the conversation. Another one that's focused in particular on why it's important to think about ritual impurity and purity in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels in particular, is a more recent book published by Matthew Thiessen. It's called Jesus and the Forces of Death. So I'm going to be introducing you to a guy named Jacob Milgram, very famous Old Testament scholar that um, focused on priestly literature. He wrote a three-volume commentary on Leviticus, most important commentary written on Leviticus, published by in the Anchor Bible Commentary series. And Thiessen takes a lot of Milgram's work and others and helpfully applies it to the Gospels. Uh, so when we see Jesus engaging people who are in various uh, states of ritual impurity, how would 
you know, early Jewish uh, Christian thinkers think about these texts, what's going on here? Our common assumption is Jesus is just doing away with, with the law or doing away with these categories. But in fact, if we pay more close attention, we see that there's something more going on and that th these ritual categories uh, may in fact all be related to our human mortality. And so to the title of Thiessen's book, Jesus and the Forces of Death, he's engaging with various forces of death, uh, ritually and in some cases morally defiling sin or something, forces of death that he's overcoming in his ministry. So a really good book, again, really uh, illuminating and will help make connections for you from Leviticus to the New Testament, in particular, in this case, the Gospels. So I commend those two works to you if this is interesting, if this topic's interesting and you want to be thinking more about Leviticus in the New Testament. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in. First off, uh, the title of Leviticus. We get the title from the Greek Leviticon, or the Latin that's taken over from the Greek Leviticum. Uh, if you look at the Vulgate, it's Liber Levitici, or if you're a church Latin speaker, Levitici, right? Um, but this is the idea. It's the, the book of the Levites or the book of the priests. In the Hellenistic period, Levites could be another term for priests. And so this made sense for the Greek translators to give this title um, to the book. And if you look at the names of our, our Pentateuch books, that's, that's where they get the name from, the Greek translation. So Leviticon, Leviticum into Latin. Um, the, the idea of naming it Book of the Priests, we see this also in like rabbinic literature. The title is Torah Kohanim, so like the manual of the priests. But in fact, in the, um, in the Hebrew Bible, the names of the Pentateuch books, they take their names not from the concept of, like not from um, necessarily like a book title, like what's the book about necessarily, but what are the, what's the first word or set of words in the book? That tends to be how they, uh, they select the title. And sometimes those overlap, right? So for example, in Genesis, Bereshit in beginning, well, Genesis does start in the beginning. It's about beginnings. So it kind of makes sense. Exodus, Vahale Shemot. So these are the names. It begins with the names of the, the people of Israel, the tribes who are there in Egypt. Uh, numbers, Bamidbar, that makes sense. They're in the wilderness. And actually, Bamidbar is the actually the fifth word in the text there. So they take Bamidbar out of uh, the fifth word as kind of um, applying that to the title. Well, in the case of Leviticus, it's Vayikra. So this is, uh, and he cried out or called out. The idea here being that um, the Lord, Adonai, is now in his tabernacle amongst his people, and it's from this movable palace the king uh, calls out to uh, the people. So the title of Leviticus in the Hebrew is Vayikra, and he uh, called out. In terms of what Leviticus is made up of, so this is just a, a by way of a little bit of background. I wouldn't want to spend too much time here. We could do a lot of we could have a very long discussion about this and would be probably be processing both some some historical components as well as some theological implications. Um, so I'm just going to kind of state this outright and allow you to chew on it. If it's something that you want me to discuss further in another episode, probably would want to bring on an expert, but I'd be happy to do that and have that conversation. Or if you just want to send me an email and we can chat about it, I'm happy to do that as well. But if you've done any work, uh, even just read some scholarship 
scholarly literature on the Old Testament and the Pentateuch in particular, the first five books of Moses, you're not going to be surprised to find out that scholars are pretty much unanimously in agreement that the Pentateuch is made up of various sources that have been brought together over time. So kind of a, a growing book, which could very well have a mosaic core, uh, I suppose it depends on the scholar you ask. Um, personally, I, I think it has a mosaic core that expands from there. Um, but, uh, but, but indeed, the Pentateuch is made up of, of various uh, sources. And so um, when we think about a book like Leviticus, Leviticus is primarily composed of two sources. So if you read any scholarly literature on Leviticus, this is the standard line that you're going to hear. So it's worth kind of just mentioning that. The first is the P source, P standing for the priestly uh, material. This is Leviticus 1 through 16. And then scholars distinguish another source called the Holiness Code, or H, uh, chapters 17 through 26. You can read the the two chapter the two sections side by side. They do have some developmental differences. Um, H seems to be developing certain things in P and moving kind of beyond that. So P maybe comes from maybe even a pre-temple period or has a core that comes from uh, the tabernacle period, whereas H is clearly reflective of the temple uh, period. So there's work going on as this priestly core, uh, this, this kind of priestly nucleus expands. But these are the two categories that scholars, uh, that, that scholars often look at, the P source, 1 through 16, more or less, and the H source, um, 17 through, uh, through 26. So just be aware of that, that if you do read scholarship on Leviticus, Jewish or Christian, and kind of modern historical scholarship, these are going to be the, that's going to be the working assumption. Right. Happy to chat more if the idea of the books of Moses being um, made up of various sources is something that's interesting to you or you're wrestling with the, the, that idea theologically. Please don't hesitate to email me. I'd love to talk talk you through it. Um, and, and, and I'm happy to provide various sources and um and, and conversation partners, right? You, you can find some scholars out there who, due to their deep theological convictions, try really hard to show that it can all be kind of explained away as the work of one source. And I'm happy to have that conversation. If that's interesting to you, let's do it. Uh, no problem. Um, but I'm going to leave it there. I just wanted you to be aware of where the scholarship is at. I think what's more interesting for us as readers of the Bible, as, as Holy Scripture, and and how the Pentateuch has come together, it's, it's very intentionally crafted, is to recognize that Leviticus is really at the core, the center of the Pentateuch. And I think that should tell us something. The core of the Pentateuch, uh, beginning in the, with the latter part of Exodus, the construction, the instruction, very detailed instructions for the tabernacle, then the building of the tabernacle, and then you open up in Leviticus 1 and the Lord cries out or calls out to his people from the tabernacle. This tells us that this is like core. The Mosaic law is about the divine presence, um, God being with the people and the tent is variously, uh, you know, called different things. But one of the, the the names for the tent is the the tent of meeting. This is where you come to meet with Adonai. So that is to say that the priestly system, the system of sacrifice and um, 
and temple and the, the cult that surrounds it. By the way, I should say, I, I re realize a p potential for misunderstanding here. And I try to, if I don't explain it, avoid this term. But since I've used the term now, I need to explain it. When I use the term cult, I am not using that term as we often do in modern parlance to talk about like a, a, a deviant sect from a mainstream religion. Um, so we, we sometimes talk, talk about cults in the church today as being forms that break off from Christianity and are no longer Orthodox Christianity. That's not what I mean by the term cult. The term cult, uh, as I'm using it, is based on its Latin root, uh, which has to do with worship, right? So cultivation, worship, this kind of a thing. And so um, when we talk about a cult in antiquity, we're talking about a, a ritual system that's set up for devotion to a god. All right, so the Israelite cult is the the tabernacle, and then the temple, and the priest, uh, the priestly system. So that's what I mean. It, just so I don't uh, confuse anybody when I use the term cult, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sacrificial worship. So again, this is at the center of the Pentateuch, which shows us that the presence of God with His people it's relational, right? It's all about the presence of God, God with his people and God's gracious initiative for covenant relationship and the maintenance of that covenant. So I, I want to invite you to think about Leviticus, the priestly system, as ongoing maintenance of that uh, gracious initiative given by God to his people for maintenance of this covenant relationship, which is all based on the grace of God, the gift of rescuing, redeeming his people, and then uh, drawing them into fellowship with him, and now giving them this system so that they can maintain this relationship. I love this quote from uh, Benjamin Summer. He does use the term P here, in here several times, and I've already introduced P to you, so I feel like I can, can use it. He writes this in his uh, book on the divine bodies. Benjamin Summers, a great Jewish scholar, quote, The goal of the events at Sinai, as P describes them, is divine imminence, and the laws are but the means to that end. It follows that the many modern scholars who speak of P as essentially legalistic or as glorifying the law misrepresent this document. P's main concern, catch this, P's main concern is not law, but the divine presence that observance of the law makes possible. Right? So the term for God's presence or glory, kavod, this is the idea that God's kavod takes up uh, residence among the people, that that's God's desire to dwell with his people, and that this system that God gives his people is kind of the necessary parameters to make sure that corrupt, sinful, mortal beings can live with the divine kavod, right? So I want you to hear that very clearly. Leviticus is all about relationship, the maintenance of that covenant relationship that God sets up with his people. All right, so that's important. And honestly, if you don't hear me say much of anything else, I'm really glad that you could hear that, that Leviticus is all about the relationship between God and, and the people. What I want to do now is kind of do a quick run through of Leviticus, um, give you a little bit of a lay of land as to where things are, talk about a few terms. And then from there, after we do that, I want to go, go walk us through a few key issues in Leviticus that I think will be interesting to you. But I'm also doing this strategically because I want to correct some misunderstandings that are out there and probably the, the predominant understanding 
understandings that are out there in the church about certain things in Leviticus. So let's begin with the first seven chapters. The first seven chapters are strategic. They set out for us uh, the various sacrifices that Leviticus is going to discuss, the requirements of those sacrifices, and then how they are to be yeah, performed, right? So these first seven chapters, they're going to cover the various kinds of sacrifices, and then you get kind of a culmination at the end, a repetition of what these sacrifices are and how they should be performed. The first thing I want to highlight about this term sacrifice is the dominant term that Leviticus uses uh, to describe sacrifice is korban. Korban is a, a, a gift. It's a gift you're giving uh, or a present, if you like, that you're giving to God. The Greek uh translation takes it over as Doran. So Doran is the same idea of gift. And this is marking all of the various kinds of sacrifices. These are fundamentally gifts that we're, the people are to bring to God to say thank you uh, in some cases, uh, or in the case of an um, unrecognized sin to um, to take care of the, the problem there, um, or various other reasons, right, that we'll go through. But they're gifts. So the first kind of the first category of sacrifice that Leviticus describes at the at the outset might be strategically put first because it was the maybe the primary one of focus uh, potentially uh, it's certainly one that gets a lot of play and that's the the whole burnt offering the olam in Hebrew or the holokalmata so again that that Greek term just means the whole burnt the burning of the whole. Um, this is described in Leviticus 1. The idea here is the entire animal basically is consumed upon the altar of burnt offering. And um, so it's like the complete devotion of the gift to God, right? There's no, the, the worshiper doesn't take a piece for them, for him or herself. The gift is fully consumed and offered to God. Interestingly, also um, in verse 4, you notice that atonement, which is a term I'm going to get into a little bit more later, but I just want to highlight it here. Atonement is connected to the whole burnt offering. And this is rare. We see it only in a few place, other places in the Hebrew Bible, but probably has some ancient resonances that there was some atonement connected with this sacrifice, even though we don't primarily think of the whole burnt offering as a sacrifice for atonement, but it is used for atonement in some places. Leviticus isn't interested in explaining the rationale of the sacrifices. Leviticus is a kind of literature that focuses on describing the ritual act as a kind of, um, I would say, theological discourse. But it's not at the level of, here's what's happening and here's what that means. Rather, the writers are just interested in, in describing what's happening, and that is a kind of theological discourse, reflecting on how things work. That develops later in Jewish uh, uh, writing into like the Mishnah and the Talmud, where uh, there's a little bit more reflection on the why of things, but there's still also just a lot of reflection on the minutia of the sacrifice. And it seems like that, that act of reflection itself is a kind of worship. There's other kind of Jewish and Christian literature where authors are interested in kind of plumbing the depths of what's behind the ritual or how you'd understand the ritual. And we find examples of this already in uh, Judaism around the time of Jesus. So a guy named Philo of Alexandria, contemporary of Jesus, when he looks at these offerings, 
um, he looks at he combines the system into three so he kind of coalesces a couple of these together but he looks at the whole burn offering as kind of the ideal because Philo says the whole burnt offering is like a picture of what's happening to the worshiper that the worshiper is supposed to offer their their whole self to God and so he sees in the whole burnt offering the entire consumption of the of the gift he sees the the offering uh the, the worshiper offering their whole self to God so that's an example of how one Jewish author at least thought about um, the offering of the whole self to God. You could maybe connect this to Paul as well, I suppose, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when he says to offer your whole body uh, as a living sacrifice to God, giving of the, the, the whole self. There may be some uh, this kind of reflection going on there um, as well. So when the, the, uh, the gift is on the altar and it's burned, the idea is the, the sweet-smelling aroma goes up. The reach niloach, and this sweet-smelling aroma is kind of like the transference of the gift to God. Uh, in a way, it's like symbolic of that. So that's the the whole burnt offering. It's the consumption of the whole uh, the whole gift on the altar. The next one is the it's sometimes translated grain offering or cereal offering. The Hebrew is mincha. Uh, the mincha just means actually tribute or gift. So we get the concept of it being a grain offering based on the things that are described as being a gift. Uh, and and the Greek translator goes the same way. The mincha is translated with a, again the Greek term for gift or offering of sacrifice. Probably the the mincha was used to. Uh, replace or, or as a substitute for those who couldn't afford to give an animal offering. And so it's it's naturally comes after the whole burnt offering because it was kind of a substitution for uh, for someone who didn't have the means to give an animal offering. Most of the gift of the, this grain offering would be placed on the altar and be consumed, but there may be a small portion left over that, that the priest gets. It's also worth mentioning because I think we sometimes, and I'll get more into this in a little bit, but when we sometimes we think about sacrifices being strictly all about animal sacrifice and the killing of the animal, you'll notice a lot of these sacrifices don't even involve an animal. So in this case, the, the mincha is describing the, a non-animal sacrifice, the cereal offering. The next category, so that's Leviticus 2. The next category is uh, Leviticus 3. We translate this like the well-being offering, the zavach shalamim. Uh, so it's the sacrifice, zavach, that you make from a feeling of uh, shalamim, yeah, well-being, wholeness, right? Um, the Greek translates it as a thusia soteriu. So it's a sacrifice of deliverance or salvation or something like this. Um in this case, this is a sacrifice where the worshiper gets a substantial portion of the meal, of the meat. The, the idea of the, the well-being sacrifice, we never see atonement connected to the well-being sacrifice. We're, in this case, we are, we're getting, uh, it, it's like having a meal with God, right? Part of it's going to going to God. Part of it comes back to the worshiper, and there's like fellowship, eating together, um, having dining with the king, if you like, dining with the divine king. So that's the well-being offering. That's Leviticus three. Then we come to Leviticus four, and we get what's often translated as the sin offering. Many scholars actually prefer purification offering. This is the chatat. Uh, the chatat is not just for sin. It, we see it's also used for consecration of priests, and it's also used for taking care of impurity. So this is why many scholars prefer 
a purification offering rather than a sin offering for the chatat. In the Greek, it is translated perites hamartias. Uh, so the idea is the sacrifice, the one for hamartia, sin or error. The, the chatat or the perites hamartias is applied both to sin, right? Uh, and and in, it's worth noting in in, um, in this case, in Leviticus, it's only accidental sin, the kind of high-handed sin. There isn't an atoning sacrifice for that. There is a, a one-off, once-a-year ritual to deal with all sin. That's Leviticus 16, I'll talk about in a moment. But the regular sin offering is for accidental sin. Uh, it's also used, as I mentioned, for uh, impurity, of certain forms of impurity, consecration, and, and so forth. The idea with the, with the sin offering, right? So a couple things. One is, here's a, maybe a good place to mention how blood functions in, in the sin offering, or why it may be better to think about it as a purification offering. The idea is that when the, when the sacrifice is made, the priest uses the blood, uh, which Milgram describes as a, I think helpfully, as a ritual detergent, because blood cleans things. So the blood from the sacrifice is taken into the sacred space and is applied to parts of the sancta depending on the kind of sin. So most of the most of the time uh, for a regular sin offering, the blood is taken and applied to the horns of, al of the altar of burnt offering. So outside of the holy place or the holy of holies. However, if it's a, an anointed priest who sins, or it's the entire people who are liable to sin, the, here the priest is a representative, so this kind of go together, uh, blood is actually taken inside into the holy place and the priest uh, sprinkles it seven times towards the curtain that marks off the holy place from the holy of holies. That seven times sprinkling you want to remember because on the day of atonement, that's also what the what the high priest does. He goes into the holy of holies and sprinkles the blood seven times. The idea here is that God's presence in the the tabernacle in the holy place is is like a magnet for sin and evil. God takes it on if you like. It, it, it attaches itself to, um, to the sanctuary. And so the blood is used to, uh, to clean off, uh, to clean away, to cleanse away the sin and the impurity that latches onto God's palace. Right? I'll get more into that here in a moment, but that's that's the idea with the blood cleansing, the blood that's used. So a couple things with the sin offering. One, you notice that it's stratified, meaning depending on who commits the sin, the kind of offering that's required uh, changes. Right. So if it is the anointed priest who's the representative of all the people, it's a bull. Um, and and that's the the blood is taken into the holy place. That's the farthest it can go when it's not on the day of atonement. And you have the seven fold sprinkling before the curtain. Likewise, if it's the whole people, if it's the ruler, it's a male goat, and blood is applied to the altar of burnt offering. That's as far as it goes. If it's an ordinary person, it's a female goat, and blood is applied to the um, again, to the horns of the altar of burnt offering. And if it's a normal person, but they don't have the means for a female goat, there's all other kind of categories uh, for compensation. What, what could be brought, right? So it goes down the line all the way in like animals to two doves rather than a goat or a sheep. You can pr provide two doves. And if you can't afford two doves, you can uh, make an, uh, a sin offering with flour. 
So there's all these kind of provisions so that anybody can do this. Anybody can make the sin offering if they recognize that they're they're in sin. So it's but it is stratified based on who is uh, who's sinned, right? The other thing that's I think important to note is so the sin offering. These are made when we're talking about sin offerings being made for sin. You notice that there's two things that go together. If you read through Leviticus four, and I'd encourage you just read it, read it straight through, and see if you can kind of spot the pattern that happens. What happens after the sacrifice has been made is there's two things. It says that the priest will make atonement uh, for sin, uh, and that it there. Oh, sorry, the priest makes atonement and their their sins or his or her sin will be forgiven to them. That is to say, the priest is in charge of the the atoning act, but the forgiveness of sin is put in the passive. And that that what that does is it makes forgiveness of sin really Adonai, the Lord's prerogative alone. Right? The idea is God's the one who forgives. Right? Some it's not a magic ritual that just you know, manifests forgiveness. You can't fool God. <laughs> God still sees the heart. God forgives. So the priest makes atonement, makes this purification, um, but but then it's the Lord who uh, who forgives. So that's a little bit about the the sin offering, and then uh, the reparation offering, the asham, and the Greek word that's used there's it's another word for error, uh, like hamartia. Uh, the difference with the reparation offering and the sin offering is the reparation offering is when there's actual damages done that need to be repaid. So that's why it's called a reparation offering. Financial restitution has to be added on um, on top of the sacrifice that's made. And it's the full amount plus a fifth. So that's what, what needs to get repaid. And sometimes that's repaid uh, to the, the temple um, or in, in, it might be repaid to a person that's been wronged. So the ritual for the reparation offering, the asham, is the same as for the chatat, uh, but the difference is the, the, the compensation, the financial compensation that goes along with it. Okay, so those are the, the five kind of five categories that get discussed in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. The rest of the chapter six and seven go back over those offerings um, and kind of summarize them. So you notice already Leviticus opens with this large block of, all right, Adonai is is in his tent. He cries out now to the people, this is how you're going to approach. This is These are the various kind of sacrifices, and that's what we give you at the beginning of Leviticus. The next section, uh, the next few chapters have to do with, all right, we got to get the priest set up there, right? So we got the, the, the uh, ordination rites and inauguration of Aaron and Aaron's sons. This is then followed by this really disturbing story where Aaron's sons, uh, Nedab and Abihu, bring Ish Zara, strange fire before the Lord, this unauthorized fire, and they are struck down. Uh, because you cannot approach God's kavod, God's holy presence, in this unauthorized way. Various theories on what th- might be going on here, but that's, I think, the basic idea. And and so then they're replaced by Aaron's two other sons, Eleazar and Itamar. Um, but then there's also this strange story that comes here where Moses becomes really irritated with Aaron and, their, and his sons because they don't eat the sin offering the chatat that's made as part of the, the, this consecration ritual. And what we see here in chapter, this is Leviticus 10, we see that there's this tradition that the chatat needs to be consumed by the high priests, 
right? That that's in fact the normal part of the whole process of sacrifice with the sin offering that um, if the high priest doesn't consume the chatat, then, may, then atonement hasn't fully been, fully been made yet. We do see some exceptions to that. So that's kind of the norm. One exception, clear exception, there's a couple, but one main exception is the chatat on the day of atonement. In this case, when you have the blood that's brought of the sacrifice that's brought into the Holy of Holies, you you can't consume that uh, food. It has to be burned up on the altar. The fat's burned on the altar and the rest of it is disposed of in an unclean place outside the camp. Nobody um, nobody con- consumes it. But the regular chatat, the Leviticus 4 chatat, the high priest would be assuming part of that, and that would actually be part of the ritual needed to solidify atonement. So we get those those that block of chapters. The next block is 11 through 15, which covers dietary laws, 11, and then various purity laws. Uh, so law for like the, the dietary laws, which separate, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit, but separating um, clean and unclean animals. So kind of the division there, what, what animals you can consume, what animals you can't consume. Purity laws, talking about birth, leprosy, although lep- this kind of leprosy isn't the... Um, what we think of today, the really serious leprosy. It's more of just a flaky white uh, skin disease. We get the different emissions, so seminal emission, as well as um, menstruation are discussed here in various purity laws. And then this is followed by Leviticus 16, which is all about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. And then in the next block, so that kind of rounds out the, the first source that we have in Leviticus we call P. The next block is the Holiness Code, uh, 17 through 26. And this takes on, it looks at a a bunch of different uh, areas. One is it's in chapter 17, it opens with a concern for the consumption of blood and discussing about how blood, what blood is for. It's supposed to be applied to the altar and yeah, guarding against misuse of blood. We get that really important line that's taken up later in a lot of early Jewish and Christian literature as a kind of summary statement about blood and sacrifice, right? And to use, to made for atonement. It's Leviticus 17, 11. Um, the life is in the blood or the life is the blood. There's d- different ways you could translate it. Um, but but God, God, Adonai has given it to the people to make atonement on the altar. In other words, blood needs to be applied in this way. So there's, there's that. There's a chapter on illicit, uh, various illicit sexual uh, relations, probably a lot of which are concerned with other practices in surrounding cultures. We get discussion about ritual and moral holiness, and here I think it's worth noting that when Jesus, when Paul, when James look to summarize the whole law, they all look to Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18, which is in this section. So it's worth us keeping in mind, if, if we want to ignore Leviticus, we probably shouldn't because Jesus didn't ignore Leviticus, Paul didn't ignore Leviticus, James didn't ignore Leviticus. They all seem to see in uh, this area that's discussing holiness, imitation of God's holiness, a kind of summary statement of the law. They weren't unique uh, in doing so, right? Uh, Rabbi Hillel did so as well. But it's just to say that it, that's an important point. It's a, that that section's important, and we're going to actually conclude our uh, episode with that section. So more on that coming. Then we get some penalties and violations for for uh, 
for holiness as well as um, description of various festivals, kind of brief descriptions, and some descriptions of punishments and rewards for, um, yeah, for fidelity and infidelity uh, to the covenant. So that's a brief or maybe not so brief <laughs> summary of Leviticus, what we find in it in terms of its content. Let me then jump into some some topics that I think are going to be interesting for you. I hope so. And um, also maybe correct or clear up some misconceptions about sacrifice and atonement. So let's begin with the concept of sacrifice um, as we have it in antiquity, but then also as we see it described in particular in Leviticus. The, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings that Christians have today about ritual sacrifice is that ritual sacrifice really isn't about death. Yes, in many cases, there is a ritual slaughter involved in the sacrifice, but really the, the totality of the sacrifice and what where Leviticus really puts the emphasis is on what happens with, the, with this gift as it's being presented, in particular with what the priests do with the blood where they apply it to the altar. Is it applied to the altar um, or you know, poured out at the altar in, in some cases? Um, and what they do with the, with the parts of the animal that they put on the altar and they burn up in smoke. If you read through the sacrifices, you'll notice that the interest on the killing of the animal really isn't there. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew tradition, the Masoretic text, the priestly activity begins after the animal is slaughtered. Now, there is some um, variance here. So if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Leviticus, that's not consistent. The priest in, the, in Leviticus, the priest also uh, is the one that slaughters the animal. But in the Masoretic text, the worshiper slaughters the animal and the priest is the one, the priestly stuff, the sacrificial stuff is everything that happens with the animal after it's been, uh, been slaughtered. It's also a process. So you, you never achieve anything with just uh, killing the animal. Right. And the point here is that to focus on this process and in particular on certain ritual acts in the process, it seems to be much more focused on application of blood, burning of animal parts uh, than uh, the killing of the animal. Right. So that's one big thing that I think we need to clear up. Ritual sacrifice really isn't focused on death per se. That's probably an idea that we have imported back in because we know that Jesus dies for us and we think about that as a sacrifice. And so then if that's what a sacrifice is, then shouldn't we think about the animal uh, as sacrificing itself for us as it dies? There's some aspects to that where you, you could make that connection, but not in terms of the, the, where the main emphasis is and not in terms of how Leviticus is thinking about sacrifice. Another misconception uh, is what happens with the sacrifice vis-a-vis -vis the hand-leaning ritual. So many of you may have heard somebody say something like this, that the worshiper brings the animal to the tent of meeting or to the, the, the temple, and the worshiper lays their hand on the animal. And by laying their hand on the animal, they're transmitting the, their sin onto the animal, right? So they're saying, I'm guilty of dying. And I'm, translate, I'm transmitting that guilt and sin onto this animal, and this animal is dying in my place. Problem is, is that's not anywhere in the Bible. That's not anywhere um, in Leviticus. The, the hand-leaning ritual really isn't about placing sins on, on the animal at all. And 
most modern scholars, unless they're really committed to that idea because they need it for how they think about the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, recognize that that doesn't have any place in Leviticus. The hand-leading ritual has to do with probably identification. In other words, here is my offering that I, I'm bringing to God. There's only one place in Leviticus where the laying on of hands transmits sin, and that's Leviticus 16, 21 where it says, Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. So all of the crimes committed by God's people throughout the year are getting heaped upon this animal. You put it on the head of the goat, and then what? You send it to God to be sacrificed? No, you send it out into the wilderness, right? Because if an animal has sin laid on it, it cannot be brought into the presence of Adonai. In this case, it's driven away from, directly, diametrically away from the presence of, of the Lord. So um, the, the hand-leaning gesture in general, if it's for a sacrifice that's being presented to God, cannot be about transmitting sin because if the animal is sin-laden, it has to be driven away from the presence of God. In addition, some have argued, and this goes back to the medieval period, you have scholars like Ibn Ezra and others argued that, well, in the Masoretic text, it's only one hand that's laid on the animal. And here we see Aaron lays his two hands uh, on the animal. So that's where the distinction is at. And many modern scholars have gone with that. The problem is that in the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it's not consistent. And in many cases, it's two hands. And the Hebrew text, even though it's pointed as one hand, uh, the Hebrew vowel points that are put in to clarify it being one hand, it could actually be a dual form in the original. And so the Septuagint translator might have gotten it right. So it may not be as clear cut as if it's two hands, it's transmitting sin. In this case with Aaron, if it's one hand, it's identification. It may be two hands. That might have been what was imagined originally. But the idea here is it, even if it was two hands, it's still not transmission of sin um, onto the animal, some kind of identification. This is my gift. This is my sacrifice, something of that nature. It's also worth noting that uh, Philo of Alexandria, I mentioned him a, a little while uh, before, when he reflected on the hand-leaning gesture, he thought it was two hands because he was reading the Greek translation, which had two hands, but he did not think it was transmitting sin. In fact, Philo says that we lay our hands on the animal to show our, get this, innocence before God. So you have a first century Jew in Alexandria writing in Greek here, um, but you know one of our main Jewish authors of the period of Jesus in the New Testament saying, yeah, we lay our hands on the animal to show that we're innocent, <laughs> not guilty. So the idea here is that very, very unlikely that the hand leaning on an animal, leaning the hand has to do with some kind of transmission of sin. It has to do with identification of the worshiper with that gift, which is then taken by the priest and brought into the presence of God. So Th that that it ha it's like in a, in a kind of roundabout way. I don't want to overstress this. Some scholars have gone in this direction. I'm not sure it can be substantiated, even though I like it theologically. In a kind of way, it's through the gift, the worshiper is drawing closer and closer uh, to the presence of God. And again, I don't want to overstress that because I'm not sure that's there in Leviticus. I think it works really well in Hebrews. Okay. So, but again, the idea is, so, so far, sacrifice is not really about death. 
right? It's about what it's about the whole ritual, and in particular uh, aspects like manipulation of blood, application of blood, um, burning up of parts on the altar so that the sweet smelling aroma goes up to the Lord. The hand leaning ritual, not about transferring sin. It's about saying, you know, identifying your gift in the presence of God. So that's two big ones we've cleared up. The third one is this term atonement. So first off, the English word atonement, this is like, you know, if you're an English speaker, you can pride yourself in this. This is the one theological term that the English language has offered us. Every other theological term we have isn't an English word. But atonement is a, a word that was that was uh, originally crafted in English to uh, communicate this concept. I think it was William Tyndale, but uh, don't quote me on that for, for sure. I, I believe it was Tyndale that first came up with it, um, but I'm not 100% positive. In any case, this idea is, you can see it in the word, at one meant. So the idea of the term is, okay, how are human beings and God reconciled to one another? The idea is they're, they're supposed to be at one, but they're apart. So how are they brought to, to one? So at one meant, right? Okay, well, it's great, great concept. Uh, it's something we talk a lot about in Christian theology. The New Testament has various ways of thinking about how human beings are uh, made right with God different um, metaphors and such. But the, one of the challenges is that this English word gets used to translate a Hebrew verb that's used very consistently in the priestly literature. The verb is, uh, it's the PL, PL form of the KPR root. Uh, so pronounce it kiper, kiper. And um, in, the, in, the, in the PL form, this means something like wiping away. So some of us have heard that atonement means to cover over, to cover over something. Uh, this is the idea of getting the, the, the cover of the ark kind of thing. Um, and that works for this root in a different form. But when it's in the PL root, it means actually the opposite of covering. It's wiping something away, like getting rid of it, right? Vigorous wiping to get away, to get rid of this, this thing. So back to this idea kind of of cleansing, right? And we see some of the challenges with translating kiper in the Greek of Leviticus, where in many cases when kiper is has to do with sin, the Greek translator will opt for this, this verb of uh, propitiation, appeasement, hilaskomai. But when it's used for cleansing, because it's also involved, it's not just involved with sin, it's also involved with cleansing, uh, they'll opt for another verb like katharizo or something like that, where you're, you're cleansing the, 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 the person or something is being cleansed. So yeah, this, this term that we see throughout the priestly literature, atonement, want to be careful that we don't import everything we think about the atonement of Jesus into this term, because it's really having to do with the wiping away or cleansing activity. It's also interesting that if you look at Leviticus, the primary object of what gets atoned for is the sancta. That is to say, the, the tabernacle or the temple, the altar, once a year the, in the Holy of Holies, the, the mercy seat, the caparet. The idea here is that God dwelling with his people, God's holiness, kind of in a paradoxical way, is a magnet for the forces of death and sin and 
by God graciously dwelling with the people, God takes this on or the, the tabernacle takes this stuff on. And so it needs to be de-sinned, if you will, or cleaned, wiped away uh, through, uh, through this process of atonement. So it's actually the, the tabernacle itself, the, the holy place, the holy places that need to be de-sinned or cleaned. But there also is, and, and this, by the way, is a, a major insight of Jacob Milgram. Again, he kind of popularized this idea and most people follow him on it. He may have been a little bit too um, rigid on this, though, where he argued that atonement never really applies to the people, only to the sancta, except on the day of atonement. And what atones for the people is their contrition for their sin, not the sacrifice itself. That was kind of Milgram's take in a nutshell. One of his students, Roy Gain, argued that uh, actually within the regular, you know, Leviticus 4 sin offering, yes, the sancta is being, you know, atoned for, but th there's also a benefit or it's also on behalf of the worshiper. So the worshiper's also being uh, cleansed in that, uh, in that process. In any case, the only like direct object. So whenever you compare something in priestly literature, it's always the thing but you can compare on behalf of someone. So it's always atone on behalf of or for somebody. And that's kind of the way that the language works. So as I already mentioned, atonement in Leviticus is for more than sin, right? It's for sin, but it's also for uh, ritual impurity, which is not a moral issue, right? Uh, these are ritual impurity as a part of aspects of regular daily life, right? Or at least regular life like childbirth, um, burying the dead, right? One of the major forms of ritual impurity is called corpse impurity. It's the impurity that comes from dead bodies. And Numbers 19, so not in Leviticus, but important priestly text, Numbers 19 has a ritual called the red heifer ritual, which is to deal with corpse impurity. And you make a, uh, you take the ashes of the red heifer and you mix it with hyssop and some red wool. You make this whole concoction and then you sprinkle it on the people to cleanse them. So the idea here is atonement is broader than just sin. And maybe I'll pause here to help connect us just a little bit to the New Testament. When you see the New Testament dealing with atonement more broadly, it's always more than strictly moral issue of sin. It's dealing with our sin and our mortality. So the fact that we're human beings, we're, we're born uh, from, if we're from dust into dust, we return. It's dealing with both of those things really together. And um, we see, for example, in the book of Hebrews, which we're going to uh, discuss next week, there's a constant emphasis uh, by the writer that Jesus shares in our weakness without sinning. So he shares our human weaknesses, our humanity, without sinning. This is the idea of our, I think, our mortality that the, the son takes on. And that's a part of the whole process of, of the atonement that he makes on our behalf. So when we think about the New Testament and resurrection, right? Resurrection is liberating us, not just from like some of the things we do bad, right? It's, there's a total forgiveness, of course, for our our transgressions, but it's also liberating us from bodies that are uh, subject to sin and death to a new resurrection life.
So that's why atonement broadly in the New Testament centers on resurrection, because you need resurrection to fully transform the human person. Okay, so that's a little bit about atonement. Let me then transfer over to talking about some ideas real quick about ritual impurity and some of the categories that the priestly system works with. So there's two different polarities in the priestly system, and we don't want to get these confused. One is holy versus profane. Holy, what is holy? Holy is, first of all, God, God's presence. So holy is what's co- what's consecrated, what's set apart to be in the presence of God or to serve in the presence of God. So the priests are holy, right? They're, they, the, the people of Israel are called holy. They're people uh, set apart for God. But even within that people, there are the priests then that are set apart to mediate on behalf of the people at large. So that's the holy. Holy is this set-apart category uh, that has been specially consecrated to be with God, to be in the presence of God. Profane is the common, right? It's not a bad thing. It's just the common everyday kind of thing, not holy. So if you think about the week, the structure of the week, the Sabbath is the holy day. The other six days of the week are profane. They're they're common. They're they're normal. Doesn't mean that they're bad. Um, many most people spend most of their life right. The vast majority of Israelites spend the most of their life as profane, right? In some sense, in, in a common state, not necessarily in a special uh, holy state. So that's holy and profane. The other category, which we don't want to confuse with that, is impure or unclean versus uh, pure or clean. Right. And these are also not moral categories. This is very important to grasp. A lot of people, especially Christians, make mistakes with the ritual, with ritual purity when they start to import moral ideas to uh, like unclean versus clean. These, again, are, are two categories, um, uh, states that um, that people would be in. So the idea is that you would actually vacillate between clean and unclean in everyday life. For example, you you might be, you know, you're, you're in a clean state one day, but maybe, you know, maybe you're married and you have relations that night. Then you're in an unclean state for, for a short period. Uh, or you're a male and you have a nocturnal emission, or you're a woman and you're on your, uh, your monthly cycle, uh, menstruation, um, or you give birth to a child, right? Um, or you have a kind of disease that taken care of ritually. So the idea is not, it's not a moral thing. The only time when, when it becomes an issue of sin is if you ignore the statutes around clean and unclean. For example, if you're in a state where you know you're ritually unclean and you go bring your sacrifice to the temple, well, now you've sinned. Now you've, uh, you've transgressed that. But it's not a moral thing uh, to be in an unclean state. That'd be just a common, um, yeah, it's a common aspect of, of life. Everybody will be in, uh, in states of uncleanness at, at various points. The key is that if you're going into the holy place, right, if you're going to the space of holiness, God's, where God's kavod dwells, you can't bring uncleanness there. So these are, again, I think, um, by God's grace, gracious regulations for being facets of, I'll describe this more in a moment, but just keeping facets of our human mortality away from the divine presence. It can't, can't be in the space of God's kavod. So to reiterate, 
in, unclean or impure is not a moral category. It's a category one would be in for a variety of different reasons. Childbirth, leprosy, seminal emissions, menstruation, uh, corpse impurity. So if you're burying a loved one, which absolutely you would do, right? You'd be a, a, a horrible lawbreaker if you didn't bury your uh, relative and take care of them. So the law assumes, Leviticus assumes that you're going to be unclean sometimes. It's not a problem. It only becomes a problem if you say, I'm going to bring my, I'm going to come in an unclean state into the holy place. All right, so what's the logic of this? What's God trying to teach his people? Again, Leviticus Leviticus doesn't tell us, right? But if we look at the various categories, I think that they're, they're a, a pretty good explanation emerges, right? Jacob Milgram was kind of the first, again, to, to suggest, well, maybe all of these categories have to do with death, right? And certainly some of that fits really well. Corpse and purity. Well, of course, okay, a, a dead body is... Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously dead, so it has to do with death uh, and the pollution that comes from the corpse. Um, and then leprosy, you can see clearly they connected leprosy to death. So it's a kind of marker of death as the skin, this white kind of flaky skin disease. It's, a, it's the idea of like dead skin, dying skin. And so it's a picture of death in some way. But what about like childbirth or some of these other things? They, they don't all seem to fit perfectly into strictly around this idea of death. But if we broaden it out a little bit more and we think just kind of more in the terms of the category of human mortality, then I think we can make sense of all of these various things. Childbirth, well, how are people born? I mean, how do people come into the world in a, in a state of mortality? You're born through natural childbirth. Um, same thing with, you know, seminal emissions, menstruation. These have to do with life or, if you like, uh, the release of the fluids that would create life. And so they're not being used to create life. So maybe you can connect those to death in some way as well. But the idea here is I think it's all connected to uh, to mortality, that Leviticus is dealing with us humanity in our in in a, in our current state that is subject to death right now when you look at some authors who are thinking about another state like the some new testament authors that are now thinking about the resurrection state well what do you notice is absent there jesus says uh you know they're they're not neither will they marry or be given in marriage because they're going to be like the angels so when jesus is talking about resurrection life human beings are still male and female but they no longer relate to each other as we do in the old creation there's no sex it, it appears and the purpose of sex primarily is procreation right but procreation in in a wor world where everyone dies right but once you're in a state of immortality right resurrection life there's no more procreation by uh, through sex so all of these categories i think are dealing with again we don't have the perfect explanation uh, but i think the best explanation is all of these categories are really dealing with human mortality and how it is that again human beings who are subject to death mortal by nature uh how how they can dwell with god who is uh, immortal right and how can how can God's divine kavod be in the space with 
with human beings who are subject to the vicissitudes of life and ultimately to death. Well, the 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 the, the full answer to that in the Bible is resurrection life, right? That it's through resurrection life that we are fully transformed to be forever in the presence of God. And Hebrews tells us Jesus is the first human, the one who's there on our behalf, mediating until we are all transformed to be like he is. All right, I don't want to spoil too much of our, our Hebrews from next week, but I think that might be a helpful way of thinking about the logic of what's going on here. All right, dietary laws. So I'm just going to say a couple things about dietary laws, not too much, but I figured a few people might email me and complain that I didn't say anything about them if I don't mention it. So this is Leviticus 11, distinguishes between clean and unclean animals. Again, it does not give us the rationale for clean and unclean. And so there's various ideas about this. Some people have proposed, right, like medical reasons. Maybe the unclean animals are more disease carriers. I don't really think that works. Um, it's probably one of the more common ones you hear in church. There, It might work in some cases, but I don't think it's the best explanation by far. Um, Maybe some of these animals were used, let's say, in certain rituals of worship of other gods. So uh, some of these animals are off off limits. They're taboo. Perhaps that works for some. Um, we do see in some ancient texts allegorical readings of these animals. I don't think that's original to Leviticus necessarily, but it is interesting to see in some early Jewish and Christian texts the animals are seen as symbolic of, yeah, moral values. And you'll have some Jewish authors presenting the dietary laws as kind of training the people of Israel to be devoted to God and stay away from idolatry uh, because certain animals are these ways. And so they avoid certain kind of behaviors that these animals signify. I don't think that's original to Leviticus, but it is something you find in early Jewish and Christian texts. Probably the one that I think makes the most sense is that uh, the priestly Priestly writers are very much interested in structure and order, and um, it seems like with the animals that are clean, these are animals that fit within kind of the dominant categories of their species. So they're not hybrids in any sense, right? They fit within uh, what you'd expect them to have. Like for if you're a fish, you know, you're going to have fins and scales, for example. And if you have other features that maybe cross over into the category of another animal, you're like in this this hybrid territory, then those seem to be the ones that are categorized as unclean. So I think it's about order and structure primarily. And then, I mean, one other solution, maybe there's some truth to this also, is that because there's only certain animals that you can bring to the Lord, perhaps the idea is, well, there's only certain things that God's people should eat then. Um, and um, and that I don't think that's necessarily incompatible with the other point. But again, so it doesn't tell us, Leviticus doesn't tell us why things are clean or unclean, but I think it has to do with order and structure and creation. I think that's the best guess that we have available to us. All right, let's talk Day of Atonement a little bit. The Day of Atonement is described in several places in the Hebrew Bible, but the most significant and the fullest description is in Leviticus 16. So it makes sense to, since we're talking Leviticus, to spend a little bit of time here. The Day of Atonement is that one-off, that one once-a-year ritual that takes care of all of the sin and impurity that's been building up over the course of the year. So as I mentioned a couple times already, the idea is that God's dwelling place has kind of taken on. And I think it's actually a beautiful picture of God's grace, God's desire to dwell with people that 
there's this distinction between the holy God, God's holiness, and the people that God's God's dwelling among, <laughs> being subject to sin and death. And so all year, by being in the presence of the people and dwelling there, God has allowed the forces of sin and death to kind of seep in and latch on to God's dwelling place. And so the Day of Atonement is where all of these things are taken care of and, and driven away and, and cleansed out. So uh, Jacob Milgram, again, I've mentioned him several times, he describes the Day of Atonement as the Day of Purgation, the day where all this, the sin and death and uh, sin and impurity is purged from the sanctuary and from the people. Right? It's the one place where we get clearly, I think, all forms of sin, even intentional the crimes of the people, all of it is taken together and dealt with on this day and through these various rituals. You've got the priests, Aaron and his sons, who will first make atonement for themselves using the bull. And then once they've done this for themselves, they choose two goats and they cast lots for the goats. And one of the goats is going to be the chatat for Adonai, so the goat for the Lord. This is the sin offering that's brought into the temple. And then the other goat is for Azazel. Uh, Azazel is some kind of wilderness demon. So the idea is you're driving, you're, we'll talk about what happens to the goat here in a moment, but the basic idea is you're driving the sin of the people as far as you possibly can get away from the from the people to the realm of Azazel out in the wilderness. So you've got one goat that's going to be sacrificed and, and its blood is going to be used to make atonement in the sanctuary. That's the sacrifice. You've got the other goat that is not a sacrifice. <laughs> it receives the sins and is driven away from the people. So as I mentioned, the, the blood of the sacrificial goat is used to cleanse the sancta. The high priest begins from the inner room first so the holy of holies and moves outward so the blood is taken into the holy of holies this is the one time a year when this happens the priest takes the censer from the inner place in the holy place um, the incense altar takes that in and sprinkles the blood seven times uh, before the uh, the mercy seat and then moves back outward and clean does the cleansing ritual also for the holy place and then moves outward again to the uh, altar of burnt offering and then the people see the priest emerge so it's like moving from the holiest place backwards taking kind of steps backwards and backwards and taking and cleansing and removing the sin from those places um so that's, that, that happens. And then once that's done, then the priest places, Aaron places his two hands on the goat for Azazel. And all of the sins of the people, all their transgressions or crimes are um, placed upon that goat. And that goat is then sent away into the wilderness, driven as far away as it can be from the people. Uh, we get in later tradition uh, in the Mishnah that um, once the goat had reached the wilderness, the sin had been driven away from Isaiah. There was a, a cord that was hanging at the temple uh, where it says, though your sins be like scarlet, I shall make them white as wool. And the scarlet uh, cord turns white uh, when the goat had gone away. This, it's a picture of sin being driven as far away as it possibly can be uh, from the people, right? So that they can continue to be in fellowship with God. After that, their priest would bathe, and then the priest would take the, uh, the, the fat of the animal, burn that on the altar, and everything else that's left over cannot be eaten. It has to be disposed of in the unclean place outside of the camp. That's disposed there, and that more or less 
summarizes the ritual. We do get some instruction at the end where it says, you know, my people will afflict themselves, which is understood often as fasting. So there would be fasting and repentance, contrition by the people on the Day of Atonement. And that would be part of uh, how the atonement is made for them. But yeah, that's that's a picture of how this ritual worked, how it functioned. We've got a sacrifice going towards the Lord and that is making atonement for the holy place and on behalf of the people. And then we also have the atonement uh, pictured in the sin of the people being driven as far away from the people as it possibly can be. So how does Jesus fit into all of this? Well, I don't want to say too much because, again, we're going to talk Hebrews next week. But Hebrews does use um, Leviticus 16. It uses the Day of Atonement ritual to talk about the uh, sacrifice of Jesus, to talk about his entrance into the heavenly holy of holies as the officiating high priest and the sacrifice and his presentation uh, of his resurrected body, uh, still bearing the scars of the crucifixion and the blood, his presentation in the the Holy of Holies. Um, so that would more kind of align Jesus with the, the goat uh, for the Lord, the sacrificial goat. In other texts, you also get Jesus uh, depicted as the goat for Azazel, or what's sometimes called the scapegoat. And in these instances, the authors tend to align Jesus as the goat for Azazel with the crucifixion, or in some cases, even his descent into hell. You find this with like Origen, uh, early church father, who thinks that Jesus serves both roles. You get this in his hom- uh, his ninth homily on Leviticus. He says, Jesus is both goats. He's the goat for Azazel when he dies and goes down to Hades. And he's the sacrificial goat for the Lord when he brings his body and blood into the heavenly holy of holies. So there are ways of connecting Jesus to the, the this, um, this ritual. And it's done in the New Testament and done even more kind of in detail outside of the New Testament. And I think it's fascinating stuff and and really helpful for thinking about Jesus' sacrifice for us. But we can't really follow the logic of what these authors are doing unless we know the story of Leviticus first. So we have to see what they're doing with Leviticus to really follow what, for example, Hebrews is doing with the sacrifice of Jesus. All right, the last topic that I want to cover, and thank you for your patience. You've made it Uh, You're almost to the end, and hopefully you can walk away with this saying, wow, I think I understand Leviticus a lot better than I did before I came into this this conversation. Or at least maybe there's at least one or two things you can take away and say, oh, wow, that, that, that makes a lot more sense than maybe it had previously. So I want to conclude with a section in Leviticus. This is from the the Holiness Code, talking about the nature of the the moral demands of holiness. We could put it this way, where the Lord Adonai is giving the people various instructions. And the reasoning for those instructions is always, I am Adonai, which I love. It's the idea of you shall be holy before because I am holy for I am holy. Right. Leviticus 19.2 the people are called to imitate Adonai, to imitate the Lord. And that's the reason. That's the justification. Right? So this it's in this section uh, that we get what Jesus, Paul, James, Rabbi Hillel, uh, and various others uh, kind of see as the core mandate of the law. What is your responsibility to other human beings? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. But I want us to appreciate the context of that love for neighbor here. And um, 
and that'll be kind of where we conclude this talk. So this is Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, and I want you to hear the whole context within which the love for neighbor takes place. You shall not hate in your heart any of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Adonai. So notice that in this context of loving your neighbor as yourself is really kind of summing up the covenantal obligation, right? I am my brother's keeper. So <laughs> if my brother is caught in sin, I do bear some responsibility to reprove my neighbor, um, reprove one from my own kin here, as it says. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so there's this kind of responsibility to the other that's wrapped into this idea of love. And then also it's seen as the right response so that one does not take vengeance or bear a grudge. So when you're wronged and you want to take vengeance or bear a grudge against your neighbor, the antidote to that is love of neighbor, right? That's what the Lord says. So you can see a lot of discussion about this in early Jewish literature that frames up how groups were thinking about their responsibility to one another. It's not an accident that this shows up in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is being asked about the core of the law and, and they're having a conversation about the law and who is my neighbor and all this kind of stuff. But but notice, like so that's the context, your, your responsibility to your neighbor and how you avoid taking vengeance into your own hands. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And again, the reason for that is I am Adonai. So like the rabbis would say, um, even if you don't feel like forgiving your neighbor, even if you don't feel like loving your neighbor, you're mandated to love your neighbor because it says, I am Adonai. I love that. We don't forgive one another uh, just because, you know, it, uh, it always feels good um, or we're always prepared to do so. We do so because of the nature of God. And uh, the rabbis, I think, really bring that out well when they discuss this text. So you probably noticed in this passage, your the neighbor is defined restrictively as your kin. So we're talking here your fellow Israelite. Or if you're somebody like, you know, part of a group that lives at the, the Dead Sea, uh, the Qumran community, you might think your neighbor is just that group of, of Jews, not even all. Uh, maybe even a more restrictive version of who your your kin is, who uh, the, the people to whom you're responsible. But we can see here it's clearly it's just Israelites. But if you keep reading on, you see that it gets expanded to this category of the ger, the alien, re the resident alien living among the people of Israel, the sojourner, right? Not a native Israelite, but who comes and decides to live among the people. It says, you shall love the ger as yourself, for you were gers <laughs> uh, in the land of Egypt. Again, I am Adonai, your God. So whoever lives among the people of Israel, whether it's a native-born Israelite or a non-native-born Israelite, someone who's come into the people, all are to be treated as neighbors. All are to be the object of love, self-giving love. Well, that's, that's great. That shows us a beautiful picture of this kind of expanse. It still uh, raises the question of the limits of neighbor. In Jesus's time, we're, we're talking now about uh, the people of Israel, and there's all kinds of tensions. So Jews and Samaritans, right? Which is where Jesus goes with the parable of the Good Samaritan. What about a Roman soldier, for example, or something like that? So 
we have, uh, and I think what we see with Jesus's teachings are a kind of an expansive vision of who your neighbor is until you get the point, which is ultimately everybody is my neighbor, even someone who I could call my enemy in some sense because they're treating me in a hostile nature, ultimately I'm called to see them as my as my neighbor. So I think we have within Leviticus this expanding view of neighbor, and this continues to expand um, and should continue to expand in our thinking as the people of God until we see everybody as our neighbor. But helpful, I think, to see the conversation around neighbor. There is a desire within human beings, all human beings, to restrict that category. And yet it seems like scripture's mandate is to continue to explode the boundaries that we want to draw and to recognize that everybody is our neighbor. Everybody, we should love everybody the way that we uh, would want to be treated and loved. So uh, that that's a great place for us to end. It shows us that Leviticus is deeply concerned not only with some of the categories we looked at around ritual, moral, and purity, sacrifice. It's also deeply concerned with the moral state of God's people and how God's people reflect God's nature. Right? Again, notice the, the reasoning for the command. I am Adonai. I am Adonai, your God. So when we, as the people of God, set out to love one another, set out to love our neighbor, everyone, as ourself, um, we're reflecting the, the nature of God. I think that's what Matthew says, right? What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that you're, you're imitating God, you're being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect when you love even those who are your quote-unquote enemies, those who uh, might be hostile to- towards you. So it's about imitation of God, being holy as God is holy, showing love uh, to all because that's how God has acted towards us. And that, my friends, is a little bit of the book of Leviticus. Hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions, you want a follow-up discussion, hey, anytime you can hit me up on email or any other other, uh, social media platforms that I'm trying to be involved in (laughs) these days. Um, But I love the conversation. And... um, I'm looking forward again to next week. So this is an entree in many ways into next week when we talk about the letter to the Hebrews. And again, I'm not going to tip my hand yet on uh, as to who my guest is, but I'll just say she's a great scholar and you're, you're in for a real treat. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. All right. And this is where we end. Thanks. <laughs>